This is our fifth episode of Roll Call, uh, Columbia Heights Police Department podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the roles of the Anoka County Attorney's Office, as well as issues relating to domestic violence awareness and Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is October, as well as recommendations for victims of domestic violence and how they can seek help. But let's back up for a second. Columbia Heights listeners and listeners from uh, outside of Columbia Heights, Anoka County, uh, we were actually in uh, the uh, Anoka County Government Center right now with uh, Anoka County Attorney uh, Tony Palumbo. And uh, thank you for for having us. Happy to be here, Ben. And um, we also have uh, our regular co-hosts, um, Officer Tabitha Wood and Officer Muhammad Farah. We have uh, Columbia Heights Police Chief Lenny Austin with us, and we have uh, another special guest, Emily Douglas. Who and Emily, could you once again say what your um, what your title was? Sure. Yep. I manage our Victim Witness Services Division in the Anoka County Attorney's Office. Well, thank you for being here and taking the time to to be with us. Um, and as usual, I'm Ben Sandell, Communications Coordinator for the City of Columbia Heights. Tony, could you tell us a little bit about what you do as the Anoka County Attorney? Sure, I'd be happy to, Ben. Uh, I am the elected uh, county attorney here in, in Anoka County. Uh, we have, I think, 46 assistant county attorneys here, um, which is an all-time high. Uh, I oversee all the workings of this office. Um, but I say oversee the workings. There are six divisions in this office. There is a criminal division which prosecutes uh, adult felons, there is a juvenile division which oversees matters relating to um, kids under 18. Uh, that is not only delinquency, but what are called CHIPS, which are Children in Need of Protective Services. That's an acronym. Kids that are in tough situations, uh, social services, and we look out to try and get those kids. And then they also do something called termination of parental rights, which is probably short of executing somebody. It is probably the most serious thing the state can do when you tell someone they no longer have their children, um, and, that, and for a lifetime. That is a very, very serious thing. When I first started, we didn't do any for the first few years. Now we're up to about 15 a year, and those are very serious cases, and our juvenile division handles that. We also have a family law division, and what that does is it helps people collect child support that they are owed or establishes paternity, and um, it helps out with some guardianships. And then we also have a civil division. If Anoka County were a corporation, we'd be about the 50th largest corporation in the state of Minnesota. And of course, if you're a big corporation, you need lawyers, right? You need a, a legal team. And we have 21 departments here in Anoka County. So I have an attorney assigned to handle legal matters for every one of those uh, particular departments. Okay. Uh, and then uh, we have uh, a victim services division of which uh, Emily Douglas is here representing. She is the uh, manager of that division and they work with victims. Uh, and I think we're going to discuss a little bit of that this morning, but they work with the victims who are involved uh, in our criminal justice system, both in the adult side and in the juvenile side. And in addition, they help with community programs. They are out in the community and they certainly are a valuable resource to the community. And then I have an investigative division and these are civilians. They're not peace officers, but they're three civilians, one of whom is uh, forensically trained uh, in computer analysis. So you bring in uh, computers and they're able to dive pretty deep in there to see what's in there. 
uh, and um, they also do uh, various other white collar crimes. They do welfare fraud crimes. Uh, they do employee investigations. We have, I don't know, 35 or 40 a year. Um, so the county attorney's office, as you can see, is an integral part of Anoka County government. And we do certainly uh, affect the lives of everybody. Um, and of course, if you've been a victim of a crime, uh, especially a felony crime, you're going to have contact with this office. And we're going to be a part of your life um, until this matter is resolved and hopefully a positive part of your life. Although, um, as we have discussed in the past, you know, we enter somebody's life at some of the darkest moments, as certainly law enforcement does right on the scene. Um, and you, of course, doing the triage, you are, are learning what has gone on. You do the reports, you bring in that investigation. But then we um, have to carry forward through the prosecution. And that's where people, um, as we all know, their emotions go up and down. And our victim services people are exceptional at trying to get these people through and making sure that they feel that justice is being administered on their behalf. So that's kind of an overview of what the county attorney's office does. And I heard, uh, Tony, that you also have an acting background. Well, (laughs) you're being kind when you call me an actor. You know, I'm a guy that stands on stage and recites lines, I guess. Uh, Yeah, I've done a few plays down at the Landmark Center in St. Paul. There are a group of lawyers and judges that get together and they put on plays. Uh, based on trials that had occurred in the Landmark Center, which was, of course, the uh, federal courthouse in St. Paul. So I've um, been a variety of people. Uh, probably the most interesting was I played uh, Fauché of the Fauché Tower. People don't realize he was a con man. And two months after the Fauché Tower opened, he was indicted and sent to prison for conning people out of all their money. So... And he was such a con man that he got the jurors to write a letter to President Roosevelt, who then pardoned him. (laughs) And he also engaged John Philip Sousa, if you know who he is. Of course, he wrote all the marches and promised him and wrote a check for $50,000. So Sousa would write a march specifically for the opening of the Fauché Tower and the check bounced. And as a little aside, the Sousa family would not let anybody pay that uh, or played that particular march to the mid-1980s when somebody finally paid off the $50,000. So, so Fauché's, um, he was quite a character. So that was one of the more interesting roles that I've played, FBI agents, other things like that, too. So. Sounds like fun. Uh, so before we get to kind of our the, the main theme we wanted to talk about today for um, October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, I just wanted to throw it over to uh, my co-hosts here, uh, Mo and Tabitha. Do you have any other questions that you want to start off with in, uh, in terms of introductions? And I'll actually pass this to the chief, see if we want to say a few remarks. and uh, Sure. And kind uh, of yeah, that's a, yeah, thanks, Mo. So maybe, um, uh, first of all, thanks, Tony, for doing this. I know you got a, you've got a pretty big, pretty big and pretty busy schedule, so uh, thanks for doing this. But... Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think I, I sometimes think people forget how significant domestic violence is in the community, and, and I I don't know what the stats are in Anoka County anymore, but I know f- just off the top of my head, I know domestic violence is always one of the when it comes to violent crime, domestic violence is always either at or close to the top um, with our misdemeanors, and then also our, our aggravated assaults. And um, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about how how you, I know, I mean, certainly how we handle domestic assaults nowadays 
is very different compared to when I started. And if you could just kind of talk about um, what your role is as far as intake of the felony, because I, I think that's the other part. There's a, there's a big difference between a misdemeanor domestic assault and a felony domestic assault, and maybe just talk a little bit about that and then talk about how that's really changed over the years. And, and I know from the, you know from the homicide perspective, what you folks have done in the county attorney's office, um, it's really made a positive impact um, in, in Anoka County, especially in Columbia Heights, some of the things that you folks have done. But maybe if you could just kind of start with that a little bit. Well, thank you, Chief. And, and I want Emily to jump in here because she certainly has a, a perspective on this also. we, um, My predecessor uh, started a program called the Lethality Assessment Program uh, out of a grant. And what that does is uh, it empowers every police department when they go out to a domestic. Uh, they conduct a 13-question questionnaire of a victim um, to screen in whether uh, they are at risk of being killed by their domestic partner. Uh, but in Columbia Heights, there were 69 screens uh, were conducted, and 51 of those came in at high risk. So in all the calls that your officers had to go to in Columbia Heights, three out of four were generally, not all, but almost all women who were in situations where they could have been killed very easily. And I uh, I don't have the actual stats about the, the number of um, homicides that have been domestically related, but it is probably reflects that 74%. Um, and one of the things they look at is, was there a gun in the house? I mean, the odds are what, Emily, three times greater of being killed if there's a, a weapon in the house, if there's a gun in the house. And we all know, you know, the officers certainly know as they get into a domestic situation and, and tempers are rising. But what we have done by having this screening, what happens is if um, the uh, victim, and we'll call them the woman in this case, because generally it is that, um, if they screen in to be very high, then the officer offers that victim their cell phone to call Alexandra House, which is the um, women's shelter here in Anoka County, the women's shelter's organization. And they deal with people who are in domestic violence situations. So we do have a shelter. So if people are in immediate danger, they and their children uh, can be transported to a shelter, which is anonymous and kept um, kept safe from uh, the person who's, who's doing the abusing. The Alexandra House helpline is uh, 763-780-2330. And there is a toll-free number also, and that is 888-780-2332. I'll repeat those. The helpline, the local 763-780-2330, or the toll free 888-780-2332. And anybody who wants to can um, call Alexander House and get information about a situation, you know, please don't wait till you're in the middle of a crisis situation. If you need information and you know you're in a relationship that's damaging to you, harmful to you, harmful to your children, to your family, et cetera, pick up the phone and call. Those are the people that are dedicated to uh, uh, helping out those in this kind of a situation and providing the resources. Um, and many of those are free resources. So we try and provide um, no excuse for someone not to call. 
when you're in a difficult situation. Uh, Emily, what do you tell people? What what advice do you have for people who are maybe afraid to leave the relationship because you know they're aware of how dangerous that is? What what can they do? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and I I don't know the answer for every person working here for 17 years. I've worked and met many victims who are in that situation that feel stuck or feel um, like they can't leave. And and that is the reason is their chances of abuse, further abuse and, and of death go way up when someone leaves or attempts to leave the situation. Um, I think our role in victim services is to try to meet people where they're at and figure out what they need to have for resources or, or options to empower them to do that, give them support, um, give them advice and education about the process, but also what they can do to address their own victimization. Alexander House is a great resource for that. Um, our services at the county are more focused on the criminal justice system and walking someone through the process, making sure they have the ability to participate in that. Sometimes going through the prosecution process and having that support through through the prosecution process is really helpful for them to kind of gain some of that power and control back. Uh, oftentimes we tell victims that, um, you know, it, it's our office that's prosecuting their abuser, not them. So they don't have to feel the pressure of making the decisions about how to handle or resolve a case. Um, our office doesn't represent victims, but we include them in the process and make sure they're able to give input along the way. And, and we hear and, and take that into consideration. And just having that support and, and that power to be able to control and, and participate a little bit is sometimes really helpful for people that are ready to leave. But the reality is that a lot of women aren't ready to leave. And we need to meet them where they're at with that as well and try to create resolutions of cases where we can help um, give resources not only to the victim, but also to the offender through better intervention programs, um, corrections and supervision and no contact orders so that we can try to keep the victim as safe as, as we can when they're returning to a relationship. Um, so it's, it's kind of all over the place. You know, it depends on the victim and the situation. And after an arrest is made and there's a court appearance, we also have a program uh, where there is uh, the woman is in danger and the men come into court and the judge sometimes can give them the option of entering into a counseling program. And studies have shown that couples or family units that enter into a counseling program, the incidence of homicide drops way down. And if they participate in this particular program, uh, there's a very good chance that perhaps that criminal charge may go away. And the other important part is Generally, uh, especially now with COVID, the numbers are skewed a bit. But before COVID, uh, it took almost 12 to 14 months to resolve a case. And now we're resolving these cases within 59 days, which is extremely, extremely important. Um, studies show that if you can deal with behavior you know, sooner rather than later, you'll get a far better result in terms of education. So we have instituted that program some years ago, and uh, we feel it's been fairly successful in reducing the number of homicides. Uh, Emily, maybe you can speak to that also. Well, the lethality assessment project that we created back in 2009 was a direct result of the number of, of domestic homicides, intimate partner homicides that we were seeing in Anoka County. We had 
I think something like 13 in the course of a few years. And it was just, we had to respond somehow. We had to do something differently. And so actually Columbia Heights was our first police department that was involved in that pilot project to create this lethality screening and figure out how we were going to then focus in on specifically those high-risk victim cases, both with victim services, but also with offenders in that program. Tony was just explaining our intensive domestic abuse pretrial program through corrections. So it doesn't only address the victim needs, it addresses the offender needs, which is really kind of a huge difference in how we've, we handled cases 10 years ago. How do you approach the those people who are the tend to be the abusers? Um, what what is it that you do to get through to them? So our corrections department at Nanoka County is our our partner that handles our domestic abuse pretrial program, and they have a probation officer who is specifically signed assigned to that caseload of high risk offenders. And at any given time, there's between twenty and twenty five offenders on that caseload. And their purpose is to provide those pretrial services to get them plugged into services right away. These batter intervention programs, um, domestic abuse programming and therapy, counseling as couples, um, and really just to have supervision at a level before they're even convicted of a crime. So they can get into services and be held accountable right away. Um, So it's been a very successful program. If there's any violations while they're on that program, they get brought into court right away, arrested. Um, I think that protocol has been very successful and I think sets our our county apart of other lethality projects that have happened throughout the county. I um, just want to jump in quick. Um, so I've had the opportunity to actually complete some of those lethality assessments and uh, it's kind of a, and it is correct, you know, when we respond to domestic violence, um, it's you're walking in situations where, you know, emotions are high, you know, you have no idea how this individual is going to react to you and stuff. So, um, and that's why we always respond to two officers in these kind of situations. Um, so, Tony, just a couple questions uh, for you. Um, can you talk about a little bit um, in terms of some of the programs that are available for victims from the time we arrest them? and kind of protect them from the offender. I know we kind of touched a little bit what's available uh, for, for the victims in, in terms of uh, when they go to, uh, you know, that first, the, when the suspect goes to uh, the first uh, arraignment, what kind of, you know, stuff that gets in place uh, that protects the, uh, the victim all the way towards the end. And also some of the stuff that, uh, what, what do you guys consider some of the charges, like when you want to charge uh, charging suspect? Charging decision? Yep, charging what, what decision. goes into a charging decision? Yep. I think I'll let Emily probably speak to a little bit of the services that are available immediately. Maybe you want to address that, and then I'll talk about the charging. Those are very good questions. Yeah. Uh, immediately when we receive a case from a police department for charging, we expedite those domestic charges, whether it's someone who's in custody or who's on warrant status. We respond to those, we prioritize them right away. Uh, So our victim services department would be reaching out to that victim the next morning when we see someone's in custody to just talk to them about what options we have at the first appearance. One of those that's the biggest way to protect someone physically is a no contact order. It's called a domestic abuse no contact order or a DANCO in cases where there's an intimate partner relationship. And almost always we have uh, our prosecutors ask for that as a part of the arraignment as conditions of release. 
usually at the beginning, we don't know what's going on. And every case is different, but we, we want to at least protect the victim until we know what's going on. Then we, our victim services specialists work with victims to really get to know them and where they're at and what they need. So depending on what individual they needs they have at that time, it might be financial. We might help them with financial assistance that they need in an emergency situation because they don't have the support of the offender right now. And they've been told to stay apart. Sometimes it's childcare. Um, sometimes it's shelter, in which we work with Alexander House quite a bit on a lot of those individual needs, um, community-based needs. Uh, sometimes it's figuring out how to get a divorce. I mean, there's so many different things that a victim might need depending on where they're at um, with, with the abuse. At our office, because we charge felony cases, and I think this will maybe be a good segue to mm-hmm. the charging decisions, but uh, we, can, we see cases that are either felonies because there's been previous convictions for domestic related offenses. And so there's been two or more convictions of similar um, domestic abuse related cases. And that makes it a felony because of the enhancement. But we also see cases that have an intimate partner relationship, but they're a charge that's elevated because of the seriousness or because of the injury. So for instance, a, a strangulation case, if there's choking involved, that would be an immediate felony. There wouldn't have to be any other convictions. Or it might be charged as a regular assault, not a domestic assault. But if there was a gun involved, it might be charged as an assault, too, because there was a gun involved and and that would make it a felony. So we see victims who sometimes have been previous victims. They've been through the system before. They may or may not have liked how things ended up in the criminal justice system. So that's something we address with them, too. Yeah, and your second part of that, uh, Mo, is uh, the charging consideration. Emily uh, listed some of those, and of course, uh, you know, I as the county attorney take those very, very seriously, as I said very earlier. And um, of course, I take every charge that comes through this office very seriously. But when I look at those, I know there's the potential for further harm right away. Um, And that's different than a stolen car or somebody shoplifting. You know, I mean, when you have a domestic violence situation, you have a potential homicide on the horizon. So we take those very seriously. So um, and we go pretty hard after these people. Uh, If they don't want to cooperate, we'll go pretty hard after an offender. And again, as Emily stated a little earlier, as we tell all our victims, it's not their decision to go forward. It's my decision to go forward. You know, I'm just asking for their help in there. And sometimes they refuse to give it. And in a certain situation, we go forward anyway. But I take them very seriously. Uh, I don't, um, let's just say I don't bargain those cases uh, uh, away unless there is some serious reasons to do so. Um, and by that, that's usually an evidentiary reason. It's usually not a, you know, a sociological reason. You know, I can't get a hold of the victim and there's no other evidence, et cetera. So uh, my hands may be tied on that, but I, I do take them very seriously because I know um, this may just be part of a line of very bad news that could be right around the corner. I think it's important to note, too, that um, when you're talking about the state pressing charges, um, that you guys are going forward with the charges. Um, what does that mean and when was that implemented? Because I know that the response has changed from back, I don't know, is it maybe the 90s where that changed? Um, but somewhere along the line that change was made where we respond to something and if we have evidence that shows a domestic assault occurred, it's a shell arrest. We don't have a choice whether the victim wants us to arrest that person or not. And that was one of the big changes with the LAP program is 
if there's if there's evidence and probable cause that we shall make the arrest. And that, again, has been a, a game changer. As we learned uh, about some of the things that victims go through um, during a lot of this and understood that, um, I guess, they were kind of being forced into a situation against their will. Um, we didn't want it to exceed to a perpetrator's will to get everybody to drop everything. So uh, we certainly have made the decision we can go forward uh, with this, regardless of whether the victim wants us to or not. Now, as a practical matter, we will certainly listen to that victim and I will see what happens. But they are not the controlling um, uh, decision maker on this. And that, uh, I guess, there was a change in the law probably about 20 years ago where case actually went up to the Supreme Court and someone did not testify. The victim did not testify, did not want to be a part of it. Yet there was evidence by other law enforcement and the conviction was sustained because they said, fine, there is still evidence that a crime was committed. The state makes the decision whether to bring this case forward. I know that's helped um, personally when I've gone to calls, and I'm sure Mo can say the same thing. That aspect has actually helped a lot of victims tell their story. And then from their side, they're like, well, it's not me going forward with those charges. It's not my choice, but it helps. So they feel a little more comfortable with telling us what happened. Many years ago, when I first started out in this office, I did child abuse cases. And that was one of the things I used to tell child and victims. You are not prosecuting your dad or stepdad. I am. You know, I'm listening to you, but I'm making the decisions. And so that removed, as Emily has alluded to earlier, that removed the burden, shall we say, of going forward with them. So the concept of pressing charges is something comes out of Hollywood, but it's not exactly accurate. Certainly not here in Minnesota. I was just wondering when you talk to victims, um, just, I was just curious how many, uh, and I know we, we asked the question on the lap as far as if they've been assaulted before, but when you, when you dive deeper in with the victims, um, is, is the number of times that that victim been abused, is, is that number pretty significant usually when you, or is it, is it just all over the, all over the map? I would say that in my experience, it's all over the map. I can say with a lot of certainty that when we see people through the system, it's not their first time being abused. We hear a lot from victims that they put up with a lot before they needed to get outside involvement. You know, I'm sure you guys experience that too from law enforcement side that you get multiple calls or there's a lot of things that happen before you even get called that you hear about. And I guess that was my question. You know, there's that, usually when we get called, that is that breaking point. And, and we know there is, and that's, you know, that's one of those, the struggles that we have. We know that, you know, we're just that first step. And, 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 and really where the rubber meets the road is in the courtroom. I mean, it really is. And we also know that there's usually a lot of history there. There's a lot of stuff to sort through. It's certainly a, a complex topic, but I will say that is one of the benefits of the lap. I, I think going through those questions, I mean, I remember the first time I saw that list of questions, I mean, those were questions a lot of times. And again, you talk about how law enforcement has changed in, in looking at domestic assault. I mean, most of the time we did, unless it was a fairly significant case, you know, where, where the, where the victim was, you know, maybe at the hospital. Um, a lot of times we didn't a ask those types of questions. We get, we try to get enough for the elements 
and then and then and then put the handcuffs on the bad guy and then and then off to jail we go but now taking that extra time i i, I think that um um we're we're feeling that impact in a positive way that you know we're starting to understand these situations a lot better as well can you give some examples of some of those questions that you're well since i haven't filled one out in a while uh, uh can. you can okay there you go um has he ever threatened he or she um, again, has yeah. he or she ever threatened to kill you? They ever threatened to kill themselves? Um, Are they employed? Do they have a job? Um, do they have access to firearms? Are they jealous or constantly stalking or harassing you? Do they have kids that they know that they know aren't yours? Um, do you fear for your life? Are you afraid this person is going to kill you? Seems like some of it, like the jealousy question. Some of it, you're, you're looking at red flags like like um verbal abuse that may be an indication of physical abuse later on do you see that a lot oh that's all the time i mean it's and most most of the time when we ask those questions those ones like they get it gets answered yes and that's red flag obviously um it's hard too sometimes i mean we go to calls where it is maybe just verbal abuse, but on our end, we, we can't do anything unless there's the threat or the fear. Um, and whether that's just disrespecting somebody else and calling them out of their name and accusing them of things where you know that that type of situation can escalate, but at that moment, it hasn't escalated yet. And we've had calls where then all of a sudden, weeks later, we go back, same thing. And doesn't mean we don't give out information. We give out phone numbers for Alexandra House. We try to do what we can on scene, try to keep the parties separated. Um, but again, on our end, we can only do so much at that point. But typically that stuff then tends to lead towards the physical violence. Okay. Is there is there anything, any kind of verbal abuse that is chargeable or is it does it have to cross, cross that threshold? Well, yeah, you can if you make a threat of violence uh, towards someone that is a separate crime. Uh, you are threatening to to harm them, um, or you pull out a weapon and you brandish it along with the, the verbal abuse. Uh, words alone, um, the words of anger are one thing. That's a very difficult. But if someone begins to to specify how they're going to hurt someone, or they're taking plans to be able to do that, uh, then we take that. Uh, a lot more well we have more authority at that point and that's and that's what we look at if there's you know just the the verbal threat we we, we look at the history i mean if, if if it's a person that we have a, a a fairly good knowledge of that or they have a history of violence and you know there are those other those other evidentiary factors yeah another thing our prosecutors have started doing over the last i don't know maybe five years if they're going to decline a case for any reason, they write up a very detailed memo, but they also make an attempt to to contact the investigator assigned to the case to talk through why they can't charge the case and what things may or may not have helped and maybe to use that as kind of a, a connection experience, but also a, that accountability back and forth and, and the opportunity to ask questions and figure out maybe next time if, if we have a similar case, what other things could we do? I think that's made a big difference. Um, <clears throat> just add one more question. I know, you know, I've been to, you know, some calls and stuff, and I've had some victims would sometimes ask about their, um, possibly being asked about their uh, legal status of being here in the country and stuff. So, so that's something that, 
you guys would look at it, if, you know, in terms of, I know you said that, you know, you're not going to be looking into the victim cooperate with the 100% to move forward with, uh, but if you want want to get some sort of a cooperation from a victim um, with their legal status and stuff, is that something that you guys look into it, or how does that work? Um, I, I don't consider the legal status if they're a victim of crime. Uh, there is something which is called a U visa. I don't know if you're aware of that. A U visa is an application by someone who is a victim of crime who um, is re- necessary for purposes of that criminal prosecution, and uh, they may not have legal status in the country at this time. I just signed three of them last week. The prosecuting authority has to certify that, indeed, um, they are necessary for purposes of a criminal prosecution. And so if you have concerns about your legal status, uh, there is uh, a way to uh, protect that legal status uh, as long as you report the crime. But in terms of consideration, I do not, you know, to me, it makes no difference whether someone is here legally or illegally. If they've been a victim of crime, I'm going to go forward and prosecute that case. Yeah, I think that's sometimes a misperception. And and I know for us, same thing. We, I mean, we, I don't even think, we don't even think about that. We just, we, we're more concerned with the elements and the facts of the case, just like you folks are. And that's, for us, that's the number one priority, and, and again, making sure that the victim is, is is taken care of. This is a lot of. You're seeing a lot of the darkest aspects of humanity, a lot, and I was just wondering how. Number one, how you maintain your own mental health when you're dealing with these situations, how you keep yourself from callousing over and hardening, um, and two. What do you look to to find hope um, in all of this? Um, you know, as far as mental health, I mean, that mental health and wellness is, is one of the things uh, that we talk about a lot with officers. I think each person, um, um, you know, or each officer looks at it differently and, you know, exercise and, and then also, you know, mental check-ins and, and that type of thing. I think, um, you know, that uh, continues to evolve. I think we're better, well, I, I know we're better, than we are compared to when I started back in 1989. Uh, I mean, back then it was, I mean, there was no such, there was no such uh, program as far as mental, mental wellness and, and that type of thing. The interesting thing is the, um, the life expectancy of police officers really hasn't changed as far as that number. That's remained about the same. And, uh, and so that is interesting, and a lot of it does uh, come down to heart disease. That's, that's probably the number one thing, and that's, and it's the um, and a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, obviously the stress level in that, but just the uh, the body's reaction to the adrenaline dumps and those types of things, those constant ups and downs, and and so I think that's one of the areas that you're going to see continue to see more work on to to go through that. But I what I will say, compared to the officers I worked with back then, who have long since retired. The, the, the we are hiring much healthier officers now compared to compared to back then. That was a very different time period. And also, you know, when they say that policing hasn't changed, oh no, it it has changed. It has changed a lot for the better. Um, for anyone who says uh, it hasn't, I think we all need to dig into the history books a little bit on that because we have certainly gotten better. We're not perfect. We've still have a long way to go, but we've certainly gotten better. So, anyways. Yep. Um, as an uh, officer 
point of view, you know, we do have a mental health check-in a couple twice a year. That helps out a lot, and also having a having a hobby helps out because you know there's that's a it's it's a lot to take in. You know, you're dealing with sometimes you know you see a lot of cases. You know, the worst part of humanity that a lot of people will never see in their lifetime. Um, and also talking to your coworkers. You know, they're the one that really go to those calls. They they will understand where you're coming from. You know, and I try to not bring this to my family. And obviously, they will ask me questions like, hey, how's, you know, what is the worst case you've handled, you know? And you just try to tell them, but they won't understand it. But talking to your coworkers and, and people that in this field with you, you know, understand it. And it kind of help each other, you know. So, and hobby is a lot, you know. I do a lot of running, and it, it makes me to not think about anything else other than just to focus on running and stuff. So that's one of the things that I do. Tabitha? Um, <clears throat> on the investigation side, you know, we I worked patrol just a couple of years ago, and now I'm investigations. And on that aspect, it sometimes can be difficult because you're working directly with a victim sometimes to try to get more elements and working closely with that victim. And then you might see another case come in with the same victim. And... You know, sometimes we do see some really bad ones that I, I'm pretty sure you can't deny that you go home and think about, and you're like, man, I hope they're okay. I hope this doesn't happen again. So that stuff does stick with you sometimes. But like Mo said, the mental health check-ins and talking to each other, because I know a lot of people outside of this profession don't really understand what we see or what we go through sometimes. So just being able to have each other. And for me, I like to be home with my family and just focus on my kids when I'm at home and... That's where I try to <laughs> send my mind to. Ben, from the prosecution side, uh, we've recognized this is an issue. In fact, Emily is chair of what are called our resiliency committee. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that, Emily, and how that has come about. I would love to. Yeah, this is something that I think in the last five years or so has really been a priority for our office. Um we and our team and victim witness, I mean, we, we say we live in everyone's bad day. <laughs> you know, we're, we're meeting people at the most traumatic times in their lives. And, and so is law enforcement. So is, so are the prosecutors. Um, we just had a discussion this morning at our victim witness staff meeting about how we, how we continue to be mindful and intentional about taking care of ourselves and each other, because things like vicarious trauma are a real thing. We didn't used to have language to talk about that. But when you're experiencing and, and watching someone else have trauma, you your body responds very similarly. The adrenaline dumps, the emotions. I mean, if, if we take those away, we're not human anymore. And so we don't want to be desensitized. We want to feel the things and, and acknowledge them and be able to process them um, with each other. And so I think over the years of managing a team of people that works with victims who have been through traumatic, traumatic things. It's really hard to teach that. I think over the years you learn how to compartmentalize, but also to, to process it more. Um, having people to talk to is, is key. If, if you're bottling it up and trying to just push it down, it's going to overflow at some point, you know? So we in our team and in our office really have, have put in efforts to try to build resiliency, build um, debriefing and staffing opportunities to talk about that um, and and be there for each other. So, um, and you, you asked about hope. Um, I think that's sometimes a hard thing to find 
in the criminal justice system, but it's, it's there. Um, I'm, I think we, we hear from victims that I've, I had 15 years ago that still call and thank me or still send cards and, and you know, you're helping. I mean, we are all in helping professions and we we do it because we, we want to be servicing our community and servicing people. And it's really hard, but we want to be those people. We want to walk people through that process and be there for them. And, and sometimes, sometimes we end up being sounding boards and being yelled at and, and cried to, but but we can be there for that person to do that and, and help them through that process. So I think there's there's a lot of hope buried in there if you look for it. Yeah, and certainly as the county attorney, I am very mindful of the toll that our work takes on everybody working in this office, from the you know legal assistant typing some of the the evil things that they have to read and see, um, to the people having to relive. Uh, through interviews with victims um, the worst day of their lives and do this over and over again. This doesn't happen just once. This happens next week and the week after. And you have to have some sort of a mechanism to be able to to uh, help people certainly deal with this and deal with it in a real positive way. So um, I'm very supportive of the Resiliency Committee, and I think it's good for both law enforcement and I think it's good for our office who lives with this don't forget you know you might have a case that goes on for nine months so you're getting phone calls from that victim sometimes twice three times a week um and they look at our victim services people as as their saviors sometime to get them through the day and um that takes a toll especially when you can't give them the aid that you want to give them but you do what you can well thank you all for answering that question so thoroughly and uh before i get to my last question I just wanted to check. Um, do any of you have any more questions you want to cover? I just wanted to make sure that people know listening that if they are too afraid to report an incident at this time to the police department, they can always call the Alexandra House. You don't have to call the police before calling the Alexandra House. That is a resource that can help you along the way if you choose to call police later on, but they are always there, and it has nothing to do with the criminal justice system. They are separate, and so you can call them. They have amazing resources and shelters, um, and they can take care of you and help you throughout the whole process, whether you want to go through the police or not. I just wanted to share another resource, too. Um, it is something that we created out of our lethality assessment project, but it's actually an online resource called anokadomesticabuseconnect.com. Again, that's anokadomesticabuseconnect.com. And what we've done is create kind of little video vignettes about each role in the process of a criminal justice system along the way that if someone were to report, they can hear from each of those roles to figure out what, what that would look like. So if they went to the hospital, you know, there's a, a forensic nurse that might meet with them. And, and we have a video to explain what that person would do. We have what victim witness would do, what law enforcement would do, what a prosecutor would do. So um, if you're in a place where you're wondering or you have more questions and you're not ready to reach out to someone for services, that might be a place to go to just learn more about what your experience might look like if you do decide to reach out. The other thing I would say is, you know, being a victim doesn't have to be your complete identity. Um, something we work with on, with victims is, you know, this thing happened to you, but it doesn't have to control the rest of your life. You can choose how you're going to move on from it. We see victims that want to come to every hearing, but we see victims that don't want to come to any. So 
you get to choose in this process how much you're involved and you get to choose how you move on from that. And so this isn't going to be your whole life. It's going to be a big part of it, but it's really scary. You have support there when you need it and we'll help you through it. I guess the message I would say, if you're in this kind of a situation, don't forget you have people. You have people that are going to help you. And it's one phone call away or it's one website away. Um, and it's free and it's going to turn your life around for the better. And not only you, but everybody in your family. And um, I think that's extremely important for your listeners to hear. There are people that are going to make a difference. So for the listeners now who, who maybe aren't, you know, don't have any direct experience with uh, an abusive relationship or domestic violence, um, what what can they do? What What do you want? What's the most important thing that you want just the general public to be aware of in relation to domestic violence? Sometimes, you know, it's as, you know, the regular average Joe who's on the road, you know, and you see is, you know, as we were saying, most victims are females. And you see, you know, females getting abused on the side of the street or getting hit, punched. You don't know who they are. Just call 911. And you don't have to get involved right away and put your life in danger. We'll respond there as quick as possible and get figure out what's going on. So, um, you know, it's, it's very serious. I just say on law enforcement's end and I guess everybody's end, I know that sometimes these cases for all of us can be very hard, especially when you're working closely with a victim and they choose not to cooperate and whether there's enough for the state to go forward or they recant their statement, um, to know that it's hard, it's very hard on our end, but there's something going on with them and eventually they'll be ready to whether come forward or give a statement or something. And we can try as hard as we can. Um, and so this is for family members, friends, or people who have people that are in those relationships and the ones we see a lot to not judge that and to understand that you know, I had a woman lash out at me at the hospital and she's like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I don't know how I'll do any of this. And it stuck with me. I mean, it, it's understandable. And to realize that, you know, hopefully they'll feel comfortable eventually to come forward and you can give them all the resources you can. And hopefully they'll come forward, but to not judge that situation. And that should go for all of us working directly with it, along with family and friends. Yeah, I would say... There's a lot of ways you can be a resource, just knowing what's out there and knowing, uh, being aware of things people might say to kind of test out if you're a safe person for them to talk to, and then knowing where to go to help them, being responsive to that. Um, Alexander House takes volunteers. So if this is something that's near and dear to your heart or you want to help, um, you can volunteer through Alexander House, through their domestic or sexual violence services programs um, to be a resource and to be of service to, to victims that need help. And I would say if you've got a friend or a family member in this kind of a situation, don't judge, but be there to help them. Be there to be supportive and don't let it drop because uh, you may be going to their funeral if you let it drop. And that, that sounds a little dramatic, but quite frankly, when we see uh, the continuum of the behavior as escalates. So if you see a friend and you know they're going to be wearing extra makeup to cover the, the black eye, or they're going to talk about how they fell down the stairs, or they bumped into this. And you know darn well that isn't the truth. So um, without judging, be there to support. You can be their best friend. 
All right. I want to thank all of uh, our guests today, um, Anoka County Attorney Tony Palumbo. Thank you for having us. Uh, Emily Douglas, thank you for being here. We sort of, you didn't even know this was happening, did you? Yesterday. Oh, yes. yesterday. Yeah. Okay. Yesterday I knew this was happening. So thanks for inviting me. Perfect. So right. move your schedule around to be here, Ben. Thank so. you. Thank you very much. So head of Victim Witness Services Unit um, and then my co-hosts, uh, Officer Tabitha Wood and Officer Muhammad Farah and uh, Columbia Heights Police Chief Lenny Austin. And on audio, we have Will Rottler. Thank you, Will, for being here. And uh, I am Ben Sandell. And thank you once again for listening. This is uh, Roll Call. And uh, signing off. Signing off. Thank you, Mo. Thank you.